I'm going to rearrange the furniture just a little bit. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Caleb's dad, James, and uh, been a friend of the Kermrise, um, wow, probably close to 40, 30 years. Mel, when did we first meet? Which is amazing because Mel's, what, 29? I'm going to destroy your stage while I'm up here. And perhaps to set some ground rules for you guys, um, it's a little warm in here. Um, and so if you need to at any moment to get up and get additional drink, additional water, additional tea, you're not going to disrupt me at all. Okay, I have 12 grandkids. I can preach through whatever's going on around me. Um, I actually have three of them with us today, but please feel free, recognizing that, that it is warm in here uh, this morning, but feel free to do that. It is a privilege to be back. I got to preach a couple of weeks ago, and I'm beginning to see a pattern. Um, whenever there's passages with people dying, Robert calls me and asks if I can preach for him, um, which is amazing because I didn't get to preach on the death of Stephen, which was kind of one of my favorite passages. Well, we've just read through Acts chapter 12, and we're going through a series called The Ordinary Church. Um, the ordinary church is filled with ordinary people, and what makes it extraordinary is an extraordinary God and an extraordinary Holy Spirit in the lives of these individuals. When you come into Acts chapter 12, the specific theme this morning is providence, the providence of God. And I'm going to take a bit of a different approach probably than what Robert or even I had expected as you sit down in the scriptures, you begin to just say, Lord, what do you want to say to your people this morning? I will tell you that I do feel like I've had confirmation from the Holy Spirit this morning that the direction we're supposed to go in this passage, which is unpredictable perhaps, is actually where we're supposed to be. So let's trust the Holy Spirit and hang with me as we move forward, because there's a lot of death in Acts in chapter 12, is there not? Um, it, anybody get a count? A body count there? It's actually kind of difficult to do, even as you look this morning. I've got some passages behind me that Caleb's going to flip through, and we're going to get a body count. And to be honest with you, Acts chapter 12 looks like an intro to a John Wick movie, right? Uh, reservations for 18 or reservations for 20 or 22. There's a lot of folks who passed away and died here. And it's interesting that we have all this death on a topic where the topic is the providence of God. Our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. Let's take a quick look. Um, if you're like me, the first one you recognized was Acts chapters 1 and 2, where you see John, the brother of James, right? He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. But even this morning, I recognized that I missed, perhaps, some murdering, some killing, and some killing of the saints of God, the people who have gathered to worship God, the people who have trusted God with their lives, has just died. Look at verse 1 of 12. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. It's the providence of God. That's not a comforting thought, per se. Now, John himself is not mentioned again in Acts chapter 12. It spends a significant amount of time on Peter. And the miraculous rescue of Peter. But verse 1 says a lot of people weren't rescued. Verse 2 says James, the brother of John, was not rescued. But in Hebrews, one of my favorite passages, one, honestly, where I can get choked up and at times be emotional, is in Hebrews chapter 11. 
How many of you know this? Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter of faith. It's the hall of faith, right? You have a hall of fame. This is the hall of faith. In the Christian realm, in the followers of God, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of fame, the hall of faith. In verse 37, they begin to speak generically, though. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Did we not just read that in Acts? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. How's that for the providence of God? But my verse, one of my favorite verses is verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Now, it's not that these are super believers or super Christians or anything like that. But having been born again into the family of God, the value that we take being the child of God is such that the earth is not necessarily worthy. Well, there are others who die in this passage. Let's look at the shoulders, and there's a lot of them, right? We first find out that Herod puts about 16 soldiers in verse 4, delivering them over to four squads of soldiers. So that's four times four. It's about 16. And if you're reading in the text in in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, it says Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, There were sentries, two sentries at the door, at least two because it's plural, sentries before the door. Then when Peter is rescued and comes out, they go between a first and a second guard. That's four layers of guards. But what happens to Roman centurions when a prisoner escapes is that they get the punishment designed for the person who had escaped. It was Herod's intent to kill Peter. It absolutely was. But in the providence of God, the rescue of Peter meant the death of about 16 or more Roman soldiers. The providence of God. Well, the third death that's declared here is a strong indicator that God's got a sense of humor and that the scriptures are not boring. The third person we see dying in here by name is Herod. And here's how it's captured in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, the natural process of a body that dies and is buried is that the worms do come and begin to take care of the body. But this passage didn't order it that way. And when I see something that's out of the ordinary like this, I go and dig. It's like a sign that says dig here in the scriptures a little bit more. There's some hidden treasures or at least something pretty bizarre here. In this case, brace yourself. It kind of gross. But it says specifically that Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's a little out of order. So I did a little bit of a trusting of Google University and found that um, trustworthy news sources like ABC and CNN all point to the same thing about how Herod likely died. Scientists tell us that more than 2,000 years ago after Herod the Great succumbed at age 69, doctors have now settled on exactly what killed the king of ancient Judea, chronic kidney disease 
complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitalia. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. What, what did Pastor James preach on or what did James preach on? Gangrene of the testicles. Okay. But listen, that's just nasty. But hey, when Scripture says or when you're... When you're kind of prompted to go dig, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Maybe it's best to just leave it at that and not go off and do this research. Now, meanwhile, you've got a, a members of the church that have been killed. You've got James who's been killed with a sword. You've got 16 or more soldiers who've been executed because Peter was rescued. And you've got Herod dying, all in the providence of God. But where we spend most of the time in the text is Peter and his escape. The providential hand of God leads Peter to freedom. Now, it does cost the lives of others. But isn't John a disciple like Peter? I mean, Peter would eventually die, right? Church history tells us through the book of martyrs that Peter dies crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way his Savior was. So Peter will eventually die, but in this text... What is there about the providence that John, who's a disciple like Peter, John who walked with, Pete, with Jesus for three years, just like Peter, but his death is captured in two short verses, and in contrast, Peter is rescued. Why? Why? God's providence. Perhaps it would help to give a, a definition of this, and I will, but then perhaps it's better to get a biblical definition which I dare say is the one we really want to cling to this morning. God's providence, by definition, is God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purpose in them. In them. Now, Caleb, this next verse isn't highlighted. Actually, it is. It's in different translation. Because I believe the better definition of God's providence actually comes from Scripture. It comes from Romans 8.28. I'll read it in ESV and then I'll read it again in New King James, which will be up behind us or behind me. Romans 8.28 says, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I believe King James reads a, New King James reads a little bit easier. Maybe you know this one. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Saint, believer, have you clung to this in respect to God's providence? God's providence. We know that all things work together. We know that all things work together in Acts chapter 12 verse 1 where the church is assaulted. We know that all things work together for the good in Acts chapter 2 when James is killed by the sword. Most likely it's a beheading. We know that all things work together for the good. The challenge we face, especially in light of Acts chapter 12, and this is where I begin to take a little bit of a diversion. diversion. Does God's providence mean... That he is accomplishing his will even in death. 
Perhaps an even more frightening question that gets very personal and closer to home and may actually turn up the temperature in the room a bit. Does God's providence mean he's accomplishing his will even in my death? You see, we all want God's providence to keep us safe, secure, clothed, fed, employed, car running, preferably everything that we talked about there, having AC. But do we trust him and his providence irrespective of the outcome? My brothers and sisters in Christ, would it be okay if our lives were in Acts chapter 1 or Acts chapter 12, verse 2? Would you be okay if God's providence meant Acts chapter 12, verse 1, or Acts chapter 12, verse 2? It's not in the notes, but in verse 29 of Romans 8, there's a really beautiful verse hidden behind there. Romans 8, 28, we just covered it. All things work together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 29, though, says... For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you, to what extent do you want to look like Christ? And I say that because I would call it advanced Christianity. We'll have you at a dinner with individuals who are going to betray you. Advanced Christianity has you going to a prayer meeting and asking people to desperately pray for you and they just fall asleep instead. To be like Christ could mean that you go to a garden where all your friends abandon you and you're left. Advanced Christianity could be, could be that one of the people you've invested the most in denies you. And advanced Christianity which is complete in Acts chapter 12 here, could mean we actually die. That's a tough question. It's a tough question. Now, I want to defer to the teaching of this topic to an individual inspired by the Holy Spirit, which God seems to have given us to fit God seems fit to have preserved this in sacred scripture. My point is this. We're talking about the providence of God in Acts chapter 12. And yet in the midst of this providence, we have believers and non-believers alike dying. But especially followers of God. The question is, is that going to happen to us? And the better question is, are we willing to let that happen to us? The Apostle Paul kind of gives us an answer, and we'll have it in Scripture, and based on this, I want to walk us through some things. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, here's what the Apostle Paul says. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but now with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Are you there? Christ, I want you honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And you can almost hear the needle on the album. I always have to ask that question. Have you all ever seen a needle in an, in an album and it makes that scratching sound when the needle comes? No? 
MP3s don't do that, do they? Neither do MP4s, neither do cassette tapes or eight-track tapes, right? But albums, forget it. You get that scratching sound. But I'll be honored that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In verse 21, verse 21, get a hold of this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you have concerns about God's providence stemming out of Acts chapter 12 and the thought that it may lead to your death, the Apostle Paul would tell you that if you're going to live, it's his Christ, and if you're going to die, it will be gain. Verse 22, he says, for if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Here's the Apostle Paul. I'm hard-pressed to be between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I has not seen nor entered into the mind of man what awaits us in the presence of Jesus Christ. Only for those who have that saving relationship. But Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary apostle paul said i want to go home i want to be with the savior that's his preference for me to live as christ to die as gain if i live the gospel expands if i live the message continues if i live scripture is written paul explains for me to live as christ and to die is gain that's the element. That's the direction I want us to take for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to try to keep this sermon along the lines of that great theologian, George Burns. Okay, Not a theologian at all, but he would say that a, a great sermon has a good beginning and a good end, and it keeps the two really, really close. So hang with me because I want to get through this and get you to someplace that has air conditioning rather quickly. But when we grasp what the Apostle Paul is telling us, that to die is gain, and what it means, we'll understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. Hebrews chapter 2 behind me, verses 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, this is speaking of Christ, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, our good news, our gospel indicates that no matter what happens, he who raised Christ from the dead will raise us up. If the spirit of Christ Jesus raised, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, you have this same hope of a resurrection. But here's what happens. He's taken the power of death from the devil, and in verse 15, and he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, let's be honest. Tomorrow, you could put a shirt on that says, I love Jesus. And you can walk around on any college campus. Will you be harassed a bit? Probably. Will somebody say something to you? Possibly. Will somebody get in your face and confront you? Likely. Will anybody draw the sword and cut you in half? No. Is anyone who stoned you to death? Probably not. 
So perhaps we don't deal as much with this fear of death as the first century church did, the ordinary church. But let me give you four things, four reasons why we are not to fear death, such that the providence of God, as demonstrated in Acts chapter 12, doesn't scare us or cause us to have fear. But rather, we have the spirit of the Apostle Paul who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Reason number one, death is a departure. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. The Apostle Paul is not catching the Swedish tunnel mana the little commercial trains that run around that you can jump on and leave. He's talking about departing the world. He's talking about to be absent from the body. You see, death is a departure, but death is also an arrival. As a pastor or even as a family member, I've done way too many memorials. I think I counted well over 40 memorials. But one of my favorite things about doing a memorial is to read a poem from an individual by the name of Henry Van Dyke. Let me read this to you, and you can find it. It came from a hospice bulletin, and I first encountered it when my mother-in-law was dying many, many years ago. Here's what Henry Van Dyke says. Here's why death is gain because death is a departure but death is also an arrival gone from my sight is the title of the poem i am standing upon the seashore a ship at my side it spreads her wide sails to the moving breeze and it starts for the blue ocean she is an object of beauty and strength I stand and I watch her until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and the sky come to mingle with each other. Then someone at my side says, there, she is gone. Gone? Gone where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She is just as large and massed, hull and spar as she was when she left my side. And she is just as able to bear her load of living freight to her destined port. Her diminished size is not in me, nor is it in, or is in me, not in her. My favorite part of this poem. And just at the moment when someone says, there she is gone. There are other eyes watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad, glad shout. Here she comes. Do you see the imagery that Van Dyke captures here? That as we stand and watch beloved individuals pass away and we say they're gone. We say they have departed. That in eternity to come and in eternity now in the presence of Jesus Christ, 
are saints who have gone before us sitting on that same shore waiting for the arrival of these individuals. Why is death again? Because yet death is departure, but death is also an arrival. The next one's even shorter, and I've hinted at it already. That death is a gain because death is a gathering. It's a gathering. First Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will all always be with the Lord. When that trumpet sounds and the Christ returns and the dead in Christ rise... Those who have already gone to be in the presence of the Lord will be there. And when we join them, either at the rapture of the church, the removal of the church, or our own passing into eternity, it is a gathering of the saints who have gone before us. Perhaps one of my favorites, death is a removal. Now, I'm not thinking in terms of a robot in Star, Star, Star Wars saying, die, you rebel scum. Right? It's not that kind of removal we're talking about. Death is the removal of all barriers to the presence of Christ. Let me give you a hint here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here's what the Apostle Paul says. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We have as saints the Spirit of God dwelling in us, very intimate with God at this moment, those who are believers. But there is a time where there's a separation of our body from our soul. That's called death. The body goes into the grave. The body goes into urn, his ashes, whatever it may be. But the soul of the individual goes to the presence of Jesus Christ. Death is not the end of the individual. It's the separation of body and soul. And the Apostle Paul again says, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Saint, listen, I know there are books written that, about our greatest life now. If I have my greatest life now, I'm heading to hell. Because my greatest life is not going to be on this planet. My greatest life is going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. We often pray this. It's kind of funny. We often pray, God, come inhabit this place. It's a great prayer. Especially our praise leaders, right? God inhabits the praises of his people, Noah. Right? We often pray, God, come inhabit this place. And we long for and we desire the presence of God, right? Isn't that how Psalm 23 ends? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever in the presence of God. Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. But you know what's fascinating about death? Death is this. Death is this. Death is not our prayer saying, God, come inhabit this place. Death is God saying, come inhabit my place. For those of us who want to be in the presence of God, 
Death removes any barrier. Any barrier. And the fourth reason to not fear death, the fourth reason that death should be considered gain, is that death gives us access. The Lord put on my heart many years ago a phrase about what heaven is like or what death is like. It's not captured on the screen, or maybe it is, but let me give it to you. It will be captured on the screen. Death gives us access. Death gives us unrestricted access to the unrestrained glory of God. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 22, Moses was talking to God. He says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Within these human, fallen, sin-infected bodies, we cannot come into the very presence of God. You stand a better chance of existing on the surface of the sun than in a body that has not been resurrected and has been prepared for God's presence. Remember what happens to Moses. I promise I won't break out in song. That old Baptist hymn, he places him in the cleft of a rock. And when God walks by, <laughs> listen, I know the world thinks they invented this idea of stare at their hand because face ain't looking. But that's what God had to do to Moses. He hit him in the rock and he put his hand there. He says, hey, you can't see my face and live. But death is access. Unrestricted access to the unrestrained glory of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his Cost of Discipleship book published in 1937, he said this about discipleship. And I want you to keep this in mind, the mentality of those who have gone before us. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death, and we give our lives to death. When Christ, here it is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now that death certainly means death to ourselves, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You can think in terms of 1 Corinthians 16, do you not know that your body is the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you whom you have? right? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. God in his providence, does he have the freedom within your life to do what he wants with his body? That is scary Christianity. I will absolutely admit. But the book of Hebrews, remember, says that when we find love and trust the providence of God up until we stop breathing and we come to a place in our lives where we can say honestly, God, if my death will glorify you, have at it. Have at it. I have seen young men pass away. I officiated one of those last year. 
a friend of mine passing away at 40 years old. He was the chef for our homeless ministry on the grill, and he suddenly passed away. And the beauty after this is that his sister-in-law gave her life to Christ when she saw how the church came around her sister. She's dating an individual. He sees what happens in her life when she gets saved after John died. He gets saved. And he's baptized. And together they're in a community group that meets in our house twice a week. Because the death of one man caused the salvation of a sister-in-law, caused the salvation. Oh, and by the way, so did his stepson. The day he died, his stepson had come home from camp to let his mom and his stepdad know that he came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, God can be, God can be glorified in our death. I don't know if you're there yet. There was an entry, just an entry in the journal. I don't know if you journal. There's an entry in a journal written October 28th, 1949. He was never put on a billboard in New York or downtown New York City. You'll never see it probably on the side of the road, but it was in a young man's journal. And this young man, Jim Elliott, now you may know, writes these words in his journal entry on October 28th, 1949. Nothing spectacular, nothing outside of flashing signs and neon. He just says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And many of you know that Jim Elliott went on the shores to try to reach a tribe with four of his friends, and they were killed on that beach. Multiple books, multiple movies, one journal entry. Mark chapter 8, verse 35 is a hinge that I hope you will take when considering walking out your lives. Mark chapter 8, verse 35 says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel We'll save it. I want to tell you there's two reasons, two reasons to lose your life. His sake and the sake of his gospel. That's it. That's it. Please do not be afraid of losing your life. Perhaps fear losing it for anything other than his name's sake and the sake of the gospel. Yes, the providence of God leads to incredible, miraculous rescues. But it can also lead to the death of many people as demonstrated in this chapter. And what's the end result in all of this? The text actually captured it in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and it multiplied. It expanded and it served its purpose. The multiplication of the word of God means many individuals came to a saving relationship. Now, there's two directions we need to go this morning. Two directions that may be represented in this room. Direction number one is those who might, trusting in God's providence, 
whisper a prayer similar to Paul like this in Philippians chapter 2. Christ, be honored in my body whether by life or by death. That's one thing we can pray in this room. For those who are ready to be just kind of, I'm telling you, if you're not prepared to die, you haven't even begun to live yet. Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. But the other prayer we might want to whisper is this. Jesus, I'm afraid of dying because I don't know you as my personal Savior. I don't have that saving relationship with you. I've never been born again. I'm a child of creation, but I'm not a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. And if that's you this morning, just whisper that prayer. Doesn't have to be shouted. Doesn't even have to be spoken. But if your heart is to have all of these promises that Christ means in his providence for his saints, you can be a part of that. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Is that you this morning? You want to know. The Word of God promises it. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. And the beauty in that is we also have to deal with the other side of this. I call that bowing the knee and confessing Christ in submission because that leads to salvation. But there will be those who will bend the knee after their death at a judgment with Christ. There too they will confess that Jesus is Lord, but that will be in subjection that results in their damnation. Either way, individuals are going to bow the name to Jesus Christ. And the question is, can we bow now and receive the hope and the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or will we face a very righteous judgment against sin that was poured out on Christ on behalf of the saints and attempt to take on that judgment ourselves? I hope you won't go that second route. I hope you'll find somebody in this room or even me and say, hey, I need to know more about Jesus. I know there are people in this room who can do this. Right. Several of them live in my house. And even as warm as it is in here, if it's even hotter outside, I'd rather spend that time helping you walk away from here with the reassurance that for me to live is Christ, but now because of Christ, to die is gain. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time, for your hope, for your power, and especially for your providence, Lord. God, we don't know what you have for our lives, and it doesn't really matter. We want to move away from prayers that say, Lord, what do you want for my life, to prayers that say, Lord, whatever you want for my life. Don't bother telling me, just do. Who you put me in the presence of, let me share the gospel. Who you put me around, let me share Christ. Who I encounter, let them know about the true and living God. For there's only two reasons to give our lives and to lose our lives. For your name's sake and the sake of the gospel. May we lose everything for the sake of those two things. For I pray this in that mighty, matchless, and majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.